This audio recording is presented by Jews for Judaism. We are dedicated to keeping Jews Jewish. www.jewsforjudaism.ca We're saying Yiddish, you're going to have to halt cup tonight. You're going to have to really concentrate, focus, don't let your mind wander because it's going to be very, very complicated. I'll just, I'll just use that as part of the preface. The fact that this is so complicated is one of the reasons why missionaries avoid this passage. Even though, as we're going to see in a few minutes, Daniel chapter 9 is probably even a stronger Christian proof text than Isaiah 53 in some ways, for some reasons. It happens to be probably, that's the one-two punch. These two passages we've just discussed are the two most powerful weapons in their arsenal but even though Daniel 9 is so incredibly powerful, it's avoided by many missionaries because it is so complicated. And what I'm going to do at the very beginning tonight is present this chapter to you as a missionary might present it. So I'm going to share with you a Christian reading of Daniel 9. And then what we'll be doing is really two parts tonight. The first part tonight will be to spend a considerable amount of time as we say in Yiddish, upschlugging the Christian interpretation. Um, we're going to pick it apart very, very critically. We're going to go in great detail through all the aspects of the Christian interpretation. And then, at the end of the evening, we'll try to go back to Daniel 9 and figure out what is really going on. So, if you look on the first page that was handed out, you have on the top a King James translation. So we're reading here from a Christian translation of the Bible. And before we even read it, I want to show you how it's normally used uh, by missionaries when you're talking to Jews. Normally, because there's any math here at all, missionaries will avoid it. Because most people that haven't read the Bible, once they start reading numbers and calculations, their heads start to spin. So they know that to give it to a Jewish person to read is going to be confusing right away. And, as I'll sh- soon show you, most Christian missionaries can't explain the math themselves anyway. So what happens normally when this is being used in the context of Jewish evangelism is that the missionary will simply give the conclusion. And the way they present the conclusion is as follows. They'll say that Daniel, the book of Daniel, predicts, tells us precisely when the Messiah is going to be killed. He gives a precise date. And the way it's normally presented is that it's it's, um, the missionary will say that the Messiah is to be killed before the destruction of the second temple. That's normally the way missionaries will present this chapter. Now we're going to see that they have a much more accurate and detailed way of giving it over But normally, all they will tell Jewish people is that in the book of Daniel, we are told that the Messiah must come and die before the second temple is destroyed. And then they simply use that as a basis for conversation. They'll say, well, the second temple was destroyed. Who was the Messiah that came and was killed before that happened? And then they'll use this in in conjunction with other prophecies to build the case for Jesus. But the reason that this chapter is so incredibly powerful is that it's very precise because it tries to pin down 
the exact date that the Messiah is to die. And many missionaries will actually try and go through the math and show that it comes out to be the exact year that Jesus was killed. So if that really is the case, that's pretty good ammunition. If you have a passage in the Bible which predicts accurately the date of the death of Jesus, the date that the Messiah is to be executed, and it turns out to be the uh, the same date that Jesus was crucified, that's fairly good ammunition. If you recall last week, one of the major problems with Isaiah 53 was that it did nothing to identify Jesus. All Isaiah 53 said was that the Messiah was going to suffer. But there was no way of tying that up to Jesus. It could have been any person that suffered in history. So there was nothing that identified Jesus as a subject. Here, Daniel 9 is a bit more useful because it zeroes in specifically on Jesus. It pins down his date of death. The other reason that this chapter is so powerful from a Christian point of view is that, as you'll see in the King James translation, it seems to speak about the Messiah. And we saw last week when you read the book of Isaiah, there's no mention of the Messiah in that chapter. There's no reason to assume it's a messianic prophecy. So really, in precisely the two areas that Isaiah 53 was most weak, Daniel 9 comes and really makes the day. Number one, it seems to be talking about the Messiah. So it really seems to be a messianic prophecy. As opposed to Isaiah 53, which they had to assume was a messianic prophecy. And secondly, Isaiah 53 didn't do anything to point to Jesus specifically. And Daniel 9 seems to have that advantage. So you, you can begin to see why this is so juicy from a Christian point of view. Now what we want to do is actually read the King James passage. And here you have to really, really follow carefully. Starting with verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. Now before we go into this passage, we have to understand a principle of biblical chronology. What is the meaning of a phrase like seven weeks? What is seven weeks? So you, are, you would be within your rights to say it means 49 days, seven weeks. That would be a possibility. However, there is a concept in the Bible that a week can refer to a week of years. A week can mean seven years. I will let you know that both Jews and Christians, because of the information from Leviticus 25 and, and many other passages in the Bible, it's, it's understood that Daniel here is referring to periods of seven years. So when Daniel says there'll be seven weeks, how many years is that? 49, week, 49 years. right? If a week is seven years, then when he speaks about a period of seven weeks, that's 49 years. And then three score and two weeks. Now, three score is 60, and two is 62. So if you have your calculators, 62 weeks is 434 years. Exactly. So look what King James does. King James says the following. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem from that period of time, whenever that is, we'll see soon. So from the going forth of that commandment until 
the Messiah, the Prince. So ostensibly, until the coming of the Messiah shall be seven weeks, which is 49 years, and three score and two weeks, which is 434 years. And what King James does here is to basically throw those two numbers together. So what he does is he says it's a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks for a total of 69 weeks. Everyone see how King James combines the seven weeks plus the 62 weeks to come up with 69 weeks. That's how the King James translation works this. Okay, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, will be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, which is a total of 69 weeks or 483 years. Total of 483 years. And he goes on to say that the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. In verse 26, and after three score and two weeks, shall the Messiah be cut off. So this is predicting the death of the Messiah after this period of 69 weeks, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, etc. And the rest of this passage is not really used by Christian missionaries. The gist of it is contained in really... the. 25th and the 26th verses where it says that there'll be a time of 69 weeks, which is 483 years, and after the 483 years, the Messiah will be killed. And they claim that this turns out to be the year of Jesus' death. Now, again, this is a pretty powerful passage, if the Christian reading is accurate. I want to share with you a verse in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to be using it for the rest of the semester. Proverbs 18.17 says the following. It says, The one who first states a case seems right until the other comes and cross-examines. It's an incredible passage in the book of Proverbs. It says the following. It says that usually, if you're a person that doesn't know what's going on, if you're an innocent person, the first person to come and present their case to you can make their side sound very credible because they get to shade the entire meaning of what you understand. So when you hear an argument presented for the first time out of context or without a, a counterbalancing position, it can sound very persuasive and very powerful. That's what it says here in Proverbs. The one who first states a case seems right until, however, the other comes and cross-examines. That's going to be the point of the rest of the class tonight. We're going to have to cross-examine this Christian claim because, again, on the surface, it seems fairly powerful. If you remember the class that we had on proof texting, you remember there were several major problems that missionaries encountered when they looked at the Jewish Bible. There was the problems of translation, problems of context, problems of circular reasoning, and we're going to actually see all of these things coming back tonight. All of the problems that we looked at in terms of Christian use of the Bible are going to be relevant to the Daniel 9 chapter. For example, let's begin with the problem of translation. The King James edition took some incredible editorial license when it translated this chapter. Incredible editorial license. For example, they translate the word Mashiach, Mashiach as Messiah. They translate the word 
Mashiach as Messiah. Now, is Messiah a real translation of the word Mashiach? Messiah is not a translation of Mashiach. Anyone here want to guess how many times the King James Bible translates the word Mashiach as Messiah? How many times in the entire Bible does the King James edition translate the Hebrew word Mashiach as Messiah? Anyone know? Exactly. Right here in Daniel chapter 9. Actually, it's two times in the same passage. But these are the only two places in the entire Bible that King James translates the word Mashiach as Messiah. And we've seen that the word Mashiach comes up dozens of times in the Bible. King Saul was called Mashiach. King David was called Mashiach. Aaron was called Mashiach. And in each and every one of those places, King James translates the word Mashiach as anointed. Right? David is called anointed, and Solomon is called anointed, and Aaron the priest is called anointed. All of a sudden, King James translates the word Mashiach here into Messiah. And it's not even a translation. Messiah doesn't tell you what the word Mashiach means. Messiah is simply an English way of saying Mashiach. What it does is, it gives you the impression that this particular anointed one is very special. The King James translation is assuming that this anointed person in this chapter here is different than every other anointed person in the Bible. Why does King James make that assumption? He's simply taking a Hebrew word and he's not translating it. He's leaving it as Mashiach. He's leaving it as Messiah. It's very peculiar. We'll get back to this. A second thing that King James does is to capitalize the letter M in the word Messiah. You probably know that in Hebrew there are no capital letters. There are no such thing as capital letters in Hebrew. And what the King James translation here does is to editorialize the translation and not just call this person Messiah with a small letter, but to give it a capital M, Messiah. And finally, something very interesting happens. King James inserts the definite article here where it doesn't exist in the Hebrew. The Hebrew doesn't say Ha-Mashiach. The Hebrew simply says Mashiach, an anointed one. And King James puts in the word the anointed one, the Messiah. So you have really three things that have crept into the King James translation. Number one, for some strange reason, he translates the word Mashiach here as Messiah rather than anointed. Number two, he capitalizes the letter M in Messiah. And number three, he inserts a definite article where it doesn't exist. Why did King James do this? Because he wanted to essentially program our minds to assume that this passage is speaking about the Messiah. Had King James translated this passage properly, you may not have assumed it was speaking about the Messiah. If he just wrote with a small letter, an anointed one will come, well, we know from the Hebrew Bible that there are many people who are anointed. It's not a special incident, it's not a special case in the Hebrew Bible to be anointed. 
But the Hebrew Bible never uses the word Messiah as a title. The Hebrew Bible never speaks about someone called the Messiah. But there's a much more serious problem with King James, an incredibly serious problem with his translation. And that is that he compresses two different periods of time into one period of time. That's the major problem with the King James translation here. What he does is he takes a period of seven weeks and a period of 62 weeks and he combines it into a period of 69 weeks. That's not what's going on in this chapter of Daniel. I want you to look in the next piece on the page here where I give you the exact Hebrew text and a literal translation of the Hebrew. And let's read it now in English. And you shall know and comprehend from the going forth of the word to return and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed prince will be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks, it, the city, will be rebuilt, street, moat, and moat, but in troubled times. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off. So what the passage in Daniel is really speaking about is an anointed prince who comes after seven weeks, meaning there's an anointed prince, an anointed ruler who comes after 49 years. And you can see from the passage itself that there are two personalities being spoken of. One of them is an anointed prince, in Hebrew, Mashiach Nagid. The other one is simply an anointed one. He's not called a prince. And there's a period of hundreds of years that separate these two personalities. Because after the anointed prince comes, after a period of 49 years, then there's a period of 62 weeks, which is 434 years, and then a second anointed person appears, and that one is cut off. One of the questions that we like to ask Christian missionaries is, when they read Daniel chapter 9, who are the two messiahs that are being speaking of, spoken of here? Because again, they think this is an entire passage that is talking about one messiah who comes after 483 years and is killed. That's not what's happening here. It's speaking about one messiah, one anointed person who's a prince that comes after 49 years, and another one who comes after 434 additional years, and that one is killed. If you ever ask a Christian, who is the second Messiah in this passage, they get very nervous. Because to them, there's one person that comes after 69 years. Again, let's go back to the King James to see how they run these two passages together. King James has it, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment from the starting time, to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So this Messiah will come after 69 weeks and the streets will be built again in the wall even in troubled times and then we're told what, ha- what will happen to this Messiah after three score and two weeks this Messiah will be cut off, etc. He'll be killed. So King James has pulled a fast one here. He's taken one of these anointed people and eliminated him from the verse, from the passage altogether. Now, how can I demonstrate to you that really there are two periods of time here? It's not that difficult. First of all, how would you express the number 69 in Hebrew? Would you write it 62 plus 7? No, actually you wouldn't write it that way in any language. In Hebrew, to say 69, you say 60 plus 9. And every language 
has 69 as a combination of 60 plus 9. Nowhere in the world do you express a number like 69 as a combination of 62 plus 7. I just gave you a proof here from Genesis chapter 5, verse 27, where you have the first time in the Bible the number 69 being mentioned. It was Methuselah, the person who lived longest in the history of the world. So Methuselah, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. That's how the Bible writes it, 969, and he died. And throughout the Bible, the word, the number 69 is expressed in the same way. The same thing with any other number. It's a combination of the tens place plus the, the digit from the ones place. That's one problem. Second problem is that King James ignores one of the vowel marks in Hebrew. If you take a look at the Hebrew text here on the second line, the second word from the left-hand side is Shavuyim Shiva, seven weeks. Shavuyim Shiva, seven weeks. And underneath the ayin, the second to the last letter, in the second to the last word on the second line, you see a little semicircle with a line on top of it. Now, I've given you on the left-hand side of the page an enlarged vision of what that looks like. It's called in Hebrew an etnach or etnachta. And what that, that, what that punctuation mark serves in Hebrew as is a semicolon. So what King James does is to completely ignore that semicolon. Go back to the original passage in the King James. He says, From the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. He puts a comma there. Seven weeks comma and three score and two weeks. And then he puts a semicolon. If you look at the translation I have next to the Hebrew, it's the exact opposite. That from the going forth of the word to return and to rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed prince shall be seven weeks, semicolon, stop. So the Hebrew tells you very clearly that this anointed prince will come after 49 years. Finished. And then what happens for the 62 weeks? The city is rebuilt for those 62 weeks. Street and moat, but in troubled times. The third proof, and probably the strongest proof, that the King James translation is completely off the wall, is by looking at the beginning of verse 26. The beginning of verse 26 proves to you that the 62 weeks is a separate period of time. Because it says, again, go back to verse 25. In the King James it says, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah will be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So what it's saying is that this Messiah will come after 69 weeks, which is 483 years. And then it says, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. What does that mean? According to the King James translation, that end of the phrase there just hangs like a hanging, like a, like a, uh, a bad toenail that's hanging. It, it doesn't belong there. There's no description of what will happen to this street and will built again. When is it happening? But then the next phrase begins, verse 26, and after three score and two weeks, what's amazing here is that King James leaves out the definite article. When it came to the word Messiah, King James put in the definite article where it didn't exist. Here, look at the Hebrew. It says, After the 62 weeks, this anointed one is cut off. So you see from the Hebrew that the 62 weeks is a discrete period of time. King James leaves out the definite article, but it's clear from the passage here 
that this 62 weeks is a separate period of time from the seven weeks. Do I have it? Just to recap quickly, the major problems that we've had so far with the King James translation is number one, the editorializing around the word the Messiah to have the definite article where it doesn't belong, to translate it as Messiah where it should be anointed, and to put in a capital M. And the second problem was that King James translation runs these two periods of times into one and homogenizes them into one period of 69 weeks after which the Messiah comes. Now, to give you an, an indication that I'm not just simply taking a partisan point of view, virtually all modern Christian translations accept the fact that King James had made a mistake. Let's just go through some of these translations. The Revised Standard Version of the Bible, this is again a Christian translation on the bottom of your page, says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, doesn't call him the Messiah there, a prince there shall be seven weeks, period. So here he says that this anointed prince will come after seven weeks, 49 years. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with moats and squares and a troubled time. That's like the Jewish reading. The New Revised Standard Version. Know therefore and understand that from the time that the word went out to restore and build Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks, semicolon. And for 62 weeks, it, the city, will be built again with streets and moat, but in troubled time. The New English Bible. Know then and understand from the time that the word went forth that Jerusalem should be restored and rebuilt, seven weeks shall pass till the appearance of one anointed a prince, semicolon. Then for 62 weeks it shall be remain restored, rebuilt with streets and conduits. And I have seven other examples here that literally show that the King James misread this passage. Now another problem. What is the fate of this anointed person? What happens to the anointed person? So the Hebrew says, Yikaret, he will be cut off. Karet, he will be cut off. Now, if you're familiar with the Hebrew Bible, you'll probably recognize that this is a term that applies to what kind of people? In the Hebrew Bible, what kind of people get cut off, get the fate of karet? Are they good people or are they wicked people? They are wicked people. God could have used a more neutral term like this anointed one will be killed. Right? Righteous people are killed. When the Hebrew Bible uses the term karet to be cut off, it refers to people that are evil and wicked and they are being cut off as a punishment. I have a number of examples in the bottom of the page here on page 2. For example, Exodus chapter 12, it says that someone who eats, un, uh, who eats chametz, leavened bread during Passover, he will be cut off from Israel. Numbers chapter 9 speaks about someone who does not bring the Passover offering will be cut off from the people of Israel. Leviticus 17 speaks about someone who eats blood. This is a passage we learned several weeks ago. So the one who eats blood will be cut off. Hosea chapter 8, verse 4. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, if I knew it not, of their silver and their gold. Have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. Again, God does not like idolatry. Idolatry is cut off. Psalm 37, verses 28 
and 38. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his faithful ones. The righteous shall be kept safe forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked shall be cut off. And the book of Ovadia, there's only one chapter there. So you see in verses 9 and 10 also a description of evil people being cut off. So here we have a bit of a problem for Christianity because in Christian terms, who is the person that's cut off here in this chapter? It's Jesus. So it's pretty peculiar that Christians who regard Jesus as not just the Son of God but perfectly righteous who never sinned would have a fate of karate, of being cut off. It's a very peculiar word for the Bible to use when it speaks about a perfect person who never sinned. Another problem with the Christian translation. If you look at verse 26, the passage says that this anointed one will be cut off. And what happens after the anointed one is cut off in verse 26? It says, after this anointed one is cut off, the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. So it says that the temple will be destroyed. So apparently at the same time, or right after this anointed one is killed, is cut off, the Jewish temple is destroyed. Now there were about 40 years that transpired between Jesus' crucifixion and the second temple being destroyed. That's a period, in Daniel's terms, of five and a half weeks. Five and a half weeks. And Daniel doesn't say here that the anointed one is cut off, and then five and a half weeks later... Or 40 years later, the temple is destroyed. If Daniel's giving a chronology here and he's been so precise all along, he wouldn't leave this so sloppy. So one of the main problems with this from a Christian point of view is, why is there a 40-year gap between the death of Jesus and the destruction of the temple? So what we've seen so far is that the missionary calculations don't add up. And that's one of the reasons why missionaries will almost never present the math here. Number one, because they just can't work it out. Number two, it doesn't work out anyway. And number three, most people will be put into a coma if they have to listen to it. So very rarely will a missionary ever sit down with a Jew, unless they're sitting down with an MIT math professor, and actually try and work out the math and show, well, this is what happened, and this is the year. They simply jump to the conclusion and say, well, the Bible says clearly that the Messiah has to be killed before the second temple is destroyed. That's the best they can get out of it. One more problem from a Christian point. Actually, we'll do a few more problems. Here's where we get complicated tonight. So here you have to really put on your thinking caps. Going back to the beginning of the passage, there was a vague reference to a going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. That's the starting point of the whole countdown, the whole calculation, right? The whole counting of 70 weeks, 69 years, all the whole math begins with this point in time. The problem is, when did this happen? When in history was there this commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem? So the missionary presentation assumes axiomatically that it's referring to the decree by King Artaxerxes of Persia to restore and build Jerusalem in the year 444 BCE. Now, if you were to ask them, how do you know that it took place in 444 BCE, 
That's their problem to prove. I'm not going to, if we nitpick on every point tonight, we're not going to get out of here. So let's just assume, for argument's sake, that Artaxerxes did give this decree in the year 444 BCE. Again, if you want the Christians to prove it, that will be their problem. So they begin with this decree in the year 444 BCE, and what do they do? They add 69 weeks of years, which is 483 years. So if you add 483 years to the year 444 BCE, you come out to the year 39 of the Common Era, 39 CE. Now, even if you want to stretch things a little bit, that's a bit too late for Jesus. Very, I mean, no one says that Jesus was crucified in the year 39. You'll hear the numbers 30, 31, 32, 33. That's as late as it gets. There's no one that says Jesus was killed after the year 33 of the Common Era. So Christians here have a bit of a problem because according to their own reckoning, it starts in the year 444. And yet, if they count 69 weeks from the year 444, they come out to 39 of the Common Era, which would be too late for Jesus being killed. So here, you have to listen carefully to what the Christians do here. It's amazing. They have seven additional years here. right? It came out to 39 of the Common Era. They would like it to come out to 32, which is generally considered the year of Jesus' crucifixion. So they have seven additional years. How do they get rid of these seven additional years? So what they claim is that in the Bible, there are two kind of years. There are what they call solar years, which are the years that we all know about. Right, A solar year has 365 and a quarter days. And they claim there's something called a prophetic year. A prophetic year. And a prophetic year has 360 days. And that's what Daniel was speaking about. So to calculate the length of Daniel's prophecy, they take prophetic year, which is 360 days, and they multiply that kind of year by 483 years, and they get a total of 173,880 days of prophetic years. And then they take those days of prophetic years, and they reconvert those back to our solar years, by dividing by 365 and a quarter to get 476 years. So if you add 476 years to 444 BCE, then you get 32 CE. It's very, very cute. Okay? This is called, if you ever took math or physics or chemistry, the fudge factor. Okay? This is called fudging your numbers. But it's very cute because they make a scientific claim that you have two different kind of years, a prophetic year, a solar year, and this way they're able to get Daniel's prophecy to really pinpoint the death of Jesus. Now, the problem with this is, is that it was invented out of pure cloth. There is no such thing anywhere in the Bible or any Jewish literature about something called a prophetic year. It does not exist. There's no such concept, and it was simply invented to serve as a fudge factor for these calculations. The Jewish calendar does have two kind of years. We have a solar year, a year based upon the sun, which is 365 and a quarter days, and we also have a lunar calendar, lunar year, of 354 days. And the Bible says that we are to use both the sun and the moon for our calendars. That's in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, 
where it says that the, the moon and the sun were both created to serve as signs for our seasons and our years. Now, as you can probably imagine, if you're using both calendars, it gets a bit sticky. For example, our normal calendar, the Jewish calendar, month to month, is a lunar calendar. And a lunar calendar has between 29 and 30 days in it each month. The problem with a lunar calendar is that it's 11 days shorter than the solar calendar. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 1, that the holiday of Passover has to be celebrated in the springtime. The Bible says Passover, the holiday, is celebrated in the springtime. Now, if you have a lunar calendar where your holidays come out according to a lunar month, you will lose 11 days a year up against the solar calendar, which means in three years you're going to lose a month. In nine years you're going to lose three months. So if we didn't make any attempt to correct for the lunar and solar discrepancy, our Passover holiday, all the holidays would be traveling around the entire solar. You'd have Passover in the winter. You'd have Passover in the fall. By the way, the Muslims have that kind of a calendar. The Islamic calendar is purely lunar. They don't make any attempt to correlate it to the solar calendar. So the Islamic holidays do travel around the entire year. What we do, in order to make up for these lost 11 days every year, is that each three years we add a 13th month. So we know that in three years you lose about 30 days, so 33 days. So in order to make up for those lost 33 days in three years, we add another month, we have a leap month, every three years approximately. So the Christian idea that there's a prophetic year and there's a solar year is bunk. There's no such thing. Now let's go a little bit deeper here. Missionaries are playing an extremely dangerous game when they attempt to use Daniel 9 as a proof that Jesus was the Messiah. And the problem is that Christians don't really know, they don't really know the exact date that Jesus died. We don't have any New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Globe and Mail from 2,000 years ago to tell us when Jesus died. So what happens is, and you can appreciate this, Christians use circular reasoning here. They don't know when Jesus died. Because they assume Jesus was the Messiah, what they're forced to do is to make sure that the life of Jesus works out according to Daniel 9. But that doesn't prove Jesus then. All it's doing is saying, we believe Jesus was the Messiah. Now we're going to try and show you that Daniel 9 somehow fits into the life of Jesus. You don't want that to happen. If you're using Daniel 9 as a proof text, you want Jesus to fit into Daniel 9, not the other way around. So there's a tremendous amount of circular reasoning here um, because what Christians are forced to do is to reconstruct the lifeline of Jesus to fit into the chronology of Daniel. Now, the dangerous game they're playing is if you really knew for sure the real date of Jesus' death and it didn't work out precisely to the time of Daniel's prediction, then Jesus is in big trouble. So the only reason, the only way Christians are able to swim through this is we don't know the date of Jesus' death. So what Christians do is they reconstruct it based upon how Daniel 9 turns out. But again, that's playing fast and loose with the data. The next part is a little bit difficult, so please focus clearly. We're going back to the Christian dating 
of the command to restore and build Jerusalem from, they claim, Artaxerxes, the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, to restore and build Jerusalem. I'm going to share with you a reason. I'm going to sh- we actually have two reasons tonight. One now, one later. But I'll share one reason with you now why this couldn't be the case. In reality, there were four different decrees given concerning the building of Jerusalem. There were four different people who issued decrees to rebuild Jerusalem. One was the decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, and that's in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. So we have that one that the Christians refer to. to. There's one by King Artaxerxes given to Nehemiah in the second chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and that the Christians date Daniel 9 from. So aside from the decree that Christians point to, that Artaxerxes gave to Nehemiah, there was another decree that Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. Ezra preceded Nehemiah. There was another decree that Cyrus gave. And there was another decree that Darius gave. So there were four different decrees. The decree of Darius, the decree of Cyrus, the decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra, and the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. So if you had four different decrees about rebuilding Jerusalem, why did the Christians pick this one? Why did the Christians pick the one that Artaxerxes gave to Nehemiah? Anyone have an idea as to why they picked this one? It fits! Isn't that incredibly moronic? Right? They're constructing Daniel around Jesus. That doesn't prove anything. Right? What you want to do is is extract Jesus from Daniel. Then they'd be operating with something substantive. So they are picking the decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah because it fits Jesus. And you saw it didn't really fit him that well. They had to fudge seven years. However, I'll show you two reasons tonight why Daniel here could not be referring to the decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. The first reason we're going to see now, the second reason we'll see later. The first reason is that Daniel here speaks about a decree to restore and to build Jerusalem. Artaxerxes never gave Nehemiah a permission or decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. That decree had already been given prior to Nehemiah. Because by the time Nehemiah came around, we'll see that the city was already rebuilt and already restored. The only thing Nehemiah was asking for was for safe permission, for permission for people to travel to repair some of the breaches that were made in the walls. You should know that when the Jewish people went back to Israel to rebuild the second temple, there were Samaritans living in the land of Israel. The Samaritans were put there by the Assyrians when they conquered the ten northern tribes. And the Samaritans were essentially now claiming that the land of Israel belonged to them. So when the Jews came back after 70 years of exile to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans were upset by this. So the Samaritans were essentially trying their hardest to sabotage the building of the temple. And the, and the Bible describes how they built the temple, what some of them were building, some of them were with bows and arrows guarding. So in the book of Nehemiah, when he gets permission from King Artaxerxes to restore Jerusalem, it's not to build and restore a ruined, destroyed city. That had already taken place. Nehemiah comes around much later 
and asks permission to send people back to Israel to simply repair some of the breaches that are made in the walls. Now a new point. I would propose that it's counterintuitive. It would be counterintuitive to maintain that Daniel is giving us the precise year when the Messiah is supposed to be killed. I would propose that that would be information that the Bible would not normally share with us. That there'd be no reason for God or the prophets to tell us in advance when the Messiah is going to be killed. And not only would there be no reason, I would suggest that it's counterintuitive that it would ever come about. First of all, it would paint God into a box. For God to tell us hundreds and hundreds of years before the event, when the Messiah is actually going to have to die, would mean that God is really constraining himself to have it work out just like this. And it might take away man's free will. If we know in advance exactly when the Messiah is going to come, that might really influence history in a negative way. We know from the Bible that there were people who had an opportunity to reveal when the Messiah was going to come, and they were stopped. For example, in the 49th chapter in the book of Genesis, Jacob wanted to reveal the end of days to his sons, to his children. And we're told, in at least rabbinic literature, that God didn't allow him to reveal the ending, the end times, to his children. And it's indicated in the Bible as well because it says that he sat them down and he wanted to reveal to them the case, the ending, but then he never says anything in the Bible. So presumably, things got in the way. He was not allowed, he was not able to reveal to his children when the ending would come. But more importantly, in the book of Daniel, when you study the entire book of Daniel, one of the things that comes up in the book of Daniel is the possibility of informing Daniel of when the messianic age would begin. Daniel is told to seal the book to the end of time. To seal the book, to close it up. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. If you look down at verse 9, and he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. What's going on here in the 12th chapter is the discussion about when is the end going to happen? When is the Messianic Age going to start? So when the book of Daniel does speak about the Messianic Age, it tells us not to really reveal when it's going to happen. So there's no sense here to say that in Daniel 9, we're being told precisely the year when the Messiah has to die. Now, if we take all of the preceding discussion together, all of the weaknesses in the Christian argument, number one, the translation problems, number two, the circular reasoning problems, number three, we're going to see in a few minutes all the context problems. We didn't deal yet with the context of this chapter. We're going to see that's completely out to lunch. But based upon all of the weaknesses we've discussed previously, I would say that Daniel 9 is a fairly feeble proof text. It's not a very strong proof text. And it really is. It's a lousy proof text. How can I demonstrate this? Very interesting way. Let's assume that Daniel 9 was a messianic prophecy. Okay? Let's assume the Christian position. Let's assume that Daniel was trying to tell us precisely when the Messiah would be killed. If that were the case, wouldn't this be an incredibly good Christian proof text? If Daniel 9 was a prophecy about when the Messiah was to be killed and it worked out to the time of Jesus' crucifixion, this would be an incredible proof text. 
wouldn't you think that the New Testament, which quotes so many different verses from the Hebrew Bible, and we've seen some of them, how lame they are. We've seen the New Testament makes up verses that don't even exist. We've seen some pretty pathetic verses in the class here when we went through proof texting, for example. So you would think the New Testament, if it had such a, per, a verse, which pinpoints the exact date of Jesus' crucifixion, the New Testament would really broadcast this in big lights, like honest eds, right? It would say, look, Jesus fulfilled this incredible prophecy in the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel tells you exactly when the Messiah is to be killed. Jesus died that exact time. You would expect, no, am I wrong? The New Testament would take advantage of this incredible prophecy. However, it is not mentioned once in the New Testament. And that's very, very strange. So the argument here is an argument from omission. If Daniel 9 really were a messianic prophecy, you would expect the New Testament to cite it. Because it's the very strongest one they have. From the fact that the New Testament doesn't quote Daniel 9 would indicate that it really isn't a good messianic prophecy. Not only does the New Testament not mention Daniel's prophecy, but in early Christian literature, the early church fathers, none of them mention it either. There's an incredible book that you can actually get in English translation. It's called Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo the Jew. Justin Martyr was an early church father who lived in the middle of the second century, so around the year 150. And he had a dialogue with a Jew named Trifo, T-R-Y-P-H-O. And in this book, it's an incredibly long book, he tries to bring hundreds of passages from the Hebrew Bible that prove Jesus was the Messiah. Again, you would think that if Daniel was a messianic prophecy and it turned out that Daniel predicted the exact date of Jesus' crucifixion, Justin Martyr would have quoted it. Not in the book of Justin Martyr. And incredibly, I'll just share with you a book that came out recently. Moshe Rosen, who is the founder of Jews for Jesus, recently wrote Beyond the Gulf War, Overture to Armageddon. There's an amazing chapter where Moish Rosen says the following. Following is a complete list of all 61 of the major messianic prophecies of the Jewish scripture and their fulfillments. So he gives a complete... I remember I told you weeks ago that missionaries will claim 300 prophecies. He's down to 61. And if he shook his hand a little bit, he'd probably knock it down to five or six. But here's the complete list of all 61 of the major prophecies. And he has in here... This is unbelievable... He has in here things that we've gone through. The slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. Remember when Matthew chapter 2 says that Jeremiah chapter 31 predicted that all the children in Bethlehem would be killed and we saw that it was a misquote because Jeremiah was only speaking about the children being exiled. So that's brought down as a prophecy proving Jesus. He quotes Psalm 41 where it says, Behold my gross friend who ate of my bread, he betrayed me. He turned his back against me. The passage we saw from the book of Psalms where missionaries themselves agree it can't be talking about Jesus. And it even quotes, incredibly enough, the passage from the book of Exodus, which says that the Paschal Lamb will not have any of its legs broken. And we saw that was somehow misapplied to Jesus. He quotes these incredibly lame prophecies, but Daniel 9 is not here. That's the end of part one for tonight. Part two. So what is going on here in the ninth chapter of Daniel? So to understand what's going on here in ninth, cha ninth chapter of Daniel, we've got to do something that missionaries are very reluctant to do, which is context. 
What is the context? What missionaries do is they parachute right down into the middle of the chapter here, verse 25. The chapter starts at verse 1. They somehow have a, a nighttime parachute land down, verse 25. We're starting in the middle of the chapter. Of course you're not going to know what's going on. There's a big chunk here of verses before verse 25. This is the third weakness of the missionary uh, presentation. One we saw with translation, number two with circular reasoning, number three the dates don't work out, but here is the problem of context. The missionaries completely ignore the context of the chapter. First of all, Daniel 9 puts us on a timeline at the very first verse. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerosh, by birth a Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, it's Chaldeans, another word for Babylonians. So this chapter takes place in the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerosh, who was the Mede, Darius the Mede, who became king over the Babylonians. Now let's look at the chart here. You, by the, way, the early part of the chart deals with the history of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was finally deposed by Belshazzar. And then in the year 3389, Belshazzar is killed by Darius the Mede. Now, if you were wondering, wait, isn't there some other Darius son of Ahasuerus that we know about in the Bible? Yes. The Purim story has Darius who was the son of Ahasuerosh and Esther. And he comes later on, much later, than our Darius the Mede, because this Darius, son of Ahasuerosh, is not a Mede, he's a Persian. Ahasuerosh in the Purim story was Persian. So Darius the Persian is down here in the year 3408. Our story of Daniel chapter 9 takes place in 3389, and it's Darius the Mede who just conquered Belshazzar the Babylonian. So that puts us a little bit in terms of the time frame. Daniel writes this prophecy. This prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 takes place in the year 3389. So it's right before the year 3390. Now I want to backtrack to put this timeline into perspective. In the year 3318... Nebuchadnezzar became the king of Babylonia. He assumed the kingship of Babylonia. The very next year, 3319, Nebuchadnezzar conquered and subjugated Israel. He conquered Israel. But it wasn't until 18 years later, in the year 3338, that he destroyed the temple. So he first subjugates Israel, and then 18 years later, destroys the temple. Now, if we continue in... Daniel chapter 9, we're going to see that Daniel was incredibly perplexed about something. Daniel was very, very bothered by something. And the main point of Daniel chapter 9 is that he couldn't figure something out. He was bothered by something. So an angel comes to tell him the solution to his problem. Part of what the angel has to say is in verses 25, 26, and 27, which missionaries quote. But if you were to ever ask a missionary, I've tried this countless times, when Christian missionaries quote Daniel 9, they quote verses 25, 26, 27, and you ask them, what's going on in the beginning of the chapter? Why is the angel coming and telling Daniel anything here? Because an angel just came down to tell Daniel the solution to a problem. But what's bothering Daniel? What can't he figure out? 
obviously it will be impossible to understand this chapter unless you understand well, what's bothering Daniel? What can't he figure out? Why does the angel have to come and tell him anything? So this is information that the missionaries don't share with you because it's not important for their presentation. But again, if you're really interested in what's going on in this chapter of Daniel, you have to go back to the beginning of the chapter to see what actually is plaguing Daniel. So we go back to the beginning of the chapter, and in verse 2, he tells us, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, he was contemplating in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. This is a mouthful. Well, he's referring to some 70 years that the prophet Jeremiah spoke about. And it was confusing to him. So Daniel here is a bit perplexed about some 70-year prophecy that the prophet Jeremiah referred to, and he can't figure out what's going on. So again, could you possibly imagine proceeding with this chapter and trying to figure out what's going on later on if you don't know in verse 2 here, well, what's bothering Daniel about these prophecies in Jeremiah? What prophecies are bothering him? What's confusing? I would propose that you cannot really figure out this chapter until you know what is bothering Daniel. So, to help us figure this out, I've quoted to you, on the same page here, two prophecies in the book of Jeremiah. One from Jeremiah chapter 25, and one from Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's go through them. Jeremiah, by the way, lived before Daniel, obviously. Daniel had access to these prophecies. In chapter 25 of Jeremiah, he says the following, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The Jewish people will serve the king of Babylonia 70 years. And it shall come to pass that when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, says the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians and will make it perpetual desolation. So Jeremiah chapter 25 is saying to us that after 70 years, Babylon would be destroyed, kaput. That's prophecy number one. Prophecy number two in Jeremiah 29 verse 10 is the following. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good words toward you in causing you to return to this place. Remember that that phrase here, perform my good word toward you. Remember that phrase. So we have two things going on. Jeremiah 25 predicts the end of the Babylonians. Jeremiah 29 predicts returning to the land of Israel. Okay, we're two different things being prophesied. What's bothering Daniel? Daniel is sitting here in the year 3389, between 3389 and 3390. The Babylonians were just deposed. The Babylonians were just deposed because Belshazzar was killed by Darius the Mede. So Daniel says, oh, wait a second. If the Babylonians have just been killed and destroyed, that's the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 25. 
Because God says, after 70 years, I will blow away the Babylonians. So he's sitting here in the year 3389, and this year, 3389, is 70 years after the conquest of Israel. In the year 3319, Nebuchadnezzar conquers and subjugates Israel. So Daniel assumed that when do these 70 years start? When do you begin counting these 70 years? He assumed it begins from the subjugation of Israel. And he sees that it was fulfilled. He sees that here in the 70th year, Belshazzar kills Darius the Mede, and now the Babylonians are out. So 70 years are up. Actually, the 70th year is going to come around the corner very soon in 3390. And he's sitting right here, right before the 70th year comes around. What is the second prophecy? The second prophecy says the Jews will go back to Israel. What do you mean go back to Israel? They're going to set up a falafel stand on Ben Yehuda Street? That's not what he's bothered by. When we read the rest of the chapter, we're going to see that the entire chapter 9 is a plaintive speech by Daniel, and it's a prayer for the restoration and rebuilding of the temple. The main topic of Daniel chapter 9 is his pain at the destruction of the temple and his desire that the temple be re- rebuilt. So what Daniel's looking forward to, what he's really bothered by, is that one part of the prophecy came true, that the Babylonians have been deposed. But he's expecting, he didn't even care about that so much, what he really wants is the return to Israel and the rebuilding of the temple. The problem is that he's sitting here now in the year 3389, between that and 3390, and he's told that the temple is going to be rebuilt by the year 3390. His understanding is that 70 years after the, the conquest and subjugation, the Jews will go back and build the temple. The problem is there are no Jews in Israel at this point. He's sitting here at the brink of 3390, and he's saying to himself, how could this prophecy ever take place? You mean in the next several months, the Jews are going to all go back to Israel and rebuild the temple? There's no indication that's happening. There's no forward motion. There are no Jews being let out. So he's getting very nervous because he assumed, and this was his mistake, he assumed that these two prophecies were congruent. He assumed that Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29 were the exact same prophecy, meaning they had the same starting date. And that's why he's freaking out now. He's saying to himself, okay, I know that 70 years after Israel is subjugated, two things are going to happen. Number one, the Babylonians are going to go kaput. Number two, we're going back to Israel to build a temple. That's what he thought. And now he's sitting there at the brink of the 70th year ending, and nothing's happening. So he begins to say to himself, "Uh uh-oh, maybe God's promise is going to be delayed, or, God forbid, canceled. He's nervous that the promise is going to be canceled because he's afraid that maybe the Jewish people had not been living up to their requirements. They've been sinning. And because of the sins of the Jewish people, God is going to annul the promise and the Jews will not go back to Israel to rebuild the temple. That's why Daniel is so bothered and perplexed and agitated and he's freaking out. Let's read his prayer. 
So he, in verse 2 he says, he was contemplating in the books a number of years that according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, he's really torn up inside. And he says, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Again, he's thinking that because the people have sinned, God is basically canceling out the promise. He continues, Righteousness in verse 7. Righteousness is on your side, O Lord, but open shame as at this day falls on us, the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Open shame, O Lord, falls on us, our kings, our officials, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his laws which he has set before us by his servants the prophets. All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice so the curse and the oath written in the book of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us a calamity so great that what has been done against Jerusalem has never been done under the whole heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We did not entreat the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and reflecting on his fidelity. So the Lord kept watch over his calamity until he brought it upon us. Indeed, the Lord our God is right in all that he has done, for we, are split, we have disobeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and made your name renowned even to this day. We have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, in view of all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, we pray, turn away from your holy city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors. He's praying here about the temple. Jerusalem and your people have become a disgrace among all our neighbors. Now therefore, O Lord God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your own sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Again, he's praying for the rebuilding of the temple. Incline your ear, O my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look at our desolation and the city that bears your name. That's Jerusalem. We do not present our supplication and the city that... I'm sorry, we do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act and do not delay. For your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people bear your name. So this is, he's pouring out his guts to God because he's so disturbed that Jerusalem is destroyed still, the temple's not rebuilt, the Jewish people aren't there to rebuild it, and that's what he's upset about. And while he was speaking and praying and confessing my, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was speaking in prayer. In the middle of the prayer, the man Gabriel, this is the angel Gabriel, 
whom I had seen before in a vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He came and said to me, Daniel, I have now come out to give you wisdom and understanding. I am going to make things clear to you, Daniel. You're bothered by not understanding these 70 years and how things work out. The angel says, I'm going to come and make things clear to you. At the beginning of your supplication, a word went out. Daniel, at the beginning of your prayers, the answer was already given. And I have come to declare it, for you are greatly beloved. Talmud says that God wanted to give him the answer right then and there. But because Daniel was so beloved to God, he's called in the Bible God's beloved, God wanted to hear him finish the prayer anyway because he he cherished those words so much. But the angel says that the word already went out to explain your, your, your puzzle. And now the angel says in verse 33, at the beginning of your supplications, a word went out. And I have come to declare it, for you are greatly beloved. So consider the word and understand the vision. So now the angel explains to him how to understand the 70 weeks of Jeremiah. Before we go into the exact text, let me just show you on the timeline what's going to be said. Daniel made the following mistake. Daniel had essentially run together two prophecies to be one prophecy. There were two separate prophecies. One was the destruction of the Babylonian kingdom after 70 years. And one was the return to rebuild Israel after 70 years. And Daniel assumed that these prophecies began at the same point in time. So counting from the subjugation of Israel... Daniel counts 70 years and comes down to the year 3390 and nothing's happening in terms of the second prophecy. So now the angel is going to explain to him, Daniel, you made a mistake. The first prophecy of Jeremiah, which speaks about 70 years to the destruction of Babylonia, you're right, that takes place from the subjugation of Israel and 70 years later it happens. But the prophecy about the returning to Israel and rebuilding the temple, that doesn't start from the conquest of Israel. That count begins from the destruction of the temple 18 years later. So Daniel is 18 years premature. He thinks the temple has to be rebuilt this year. And he's going to be told, no, 18 years from now. Look what happens, by the way. From 3338... We count from 3338, destruction of the temple, 3408, the temple is finally completed and built. So it actually takes place. The return to Israel and the rebuilding of the temple takes place 70 years after the destruction. Now, what is the prophecy that he's given? If you go back to Daniel chapter 9, in the beginning, the angel already told him at this point that the calculation of Jeremiah is counted from the destruction of Jerusalem. The Hebrew here in verse 2 is Michorvot Yerushalayim. This is what the angel meant subsequently when he said that a word went out at the beginning of your supplication already to make it clear to you. 
And we'll see that this is the interpretation in a minute. But here, in the very beginning of the chapter, the information is relayed to us that the 70 years of Jeremiah that he's bothered by begins not from the subjugation of Israel, but from the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's essentially the message that the angel's coming to give him. Tell him that he's mistaken by 18 years because he's counting the 70 years of Jeremiah 29 from here, 3319, instead of from here, 3338. Now just hold on to your hats because this is going to get your head swimming a little bit. Just go back for a second to the first page. And I want to point out one other mistranslation in the King James Version. You'll see in King James, verse 25, he renders the verse as follows. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. The Hebrew word here is not mitzvah or any other similar word, but it's the word davar. The Hebrew word here is not commandment, but davar, which is word. So the proper translation is, and you'll see it on the, on the next part of the page where I have the correct English translation, you shall know and comprehend that from the going forth of the word of the davar to return and rebuild Jerusalem will be seven, 70 years. I'm sorry, will be seven weeks. So what King James does is to mistranslate word into command. And we're going to see, I need you to keep this in mind, that this term, the word to rebuild Jerusalem, is a very, very crucial term. We're going to see that Jeremiah had such a concept of a word, a davar of God, a word of God. If you go back to page 3, Jeremiah chapter 29 has that term. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Just hold that in your memory banks for a few minutes. We'll get back to it. What I want to do is just take a a parenthetical diversion for a few minutes and share with you the second reason why the starting point for Daniel's prophecy could not be the decree by Artaxeres to Nehemiah. If you remember, the Christian point of view is that we begin the counting from the decree by Artaxeres to Nehemiah in the year 444. Now, it's very easy to demonstrate why that is impossible. Again, the first reason I gave you why that dating is impossible is that the decree to Nehemiah was not to rebuild and restore the city. It had been given previously. Nehemiah was only given permission to repair the walls. But I want to share with you a second reason why the dating from this decree to Nehemiah was impossible. Follow carefully. Daniel is sitting here in the year 3389, between 89 and 90. And he is perplexed. He's going out of his kalim. He's going nuts. Because he doesn't know when is Jerusalem going to be rebuilt. That's what he's wanting. So God is going to give him, through the angel Gabriel... The angel is going to clarify, and don't forget, what did the angel say I'm coming to do? Because you're beloved, I'm coming to make you wise and give you understanding. I'm coming to make everything crystal clear for you. 
So we would expect that after the encounter with the angel, Daniel would walk away with some clear information. Now, if the angel is to tell him at this point, Daniel, don't worry. Because, let's say from the Christian interpretation, because 69 years or 70 years, which would be 483 years, after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, something great's going to happen. So from a Christian point of view, when does the count begin? When does this count of 483 years begin? It begins down here. So back here in the year 3389, if the angel is referring to something which hasn't happened yet and won't happen for another 70 years, Daniel has no access to that starting point. If the angel is telling Daniel over here that there's going to be a decree sometime in the future, there's going to be a decree to restore and build Jerusalem, hasn't happened yet, and you have no idea when it's going to happen, but you should know, Daniel, that 483 years after that decree, something great's going to happen. So Daniel would walk away from that encounter knowing no more than he knew before he walked into the encounter. The point I'm trying to make is that when the angel comes here in the year 3389, he's got to be giving Daniel access to a starting counting date that Daniel can put his finger on. When the angel comes and says, don't worry, you'll count uh, seven weeks of years, you'll count 49 years, and then an, an anointed one's going to come, so Daniel has to be able to make that count. If the starting point for the countdown is an indefinite period of time after Daniel is sitting here, Daniel can't start counting. The information he's getting is useless. So what Daniel is going to hear is a message where he has access to the starting point. Clearly, the starting point is some point before 3389. So Daniel can now say, oh, now I understand. I've got to count seven weeks of years or 49 years from some point up here. And then I will understand what the prophet, what the angel was saying. Is this clear? You see, he's puzzled. He doesn't know what to do. What, when, who, where. So the angel comes and says, Daniel, because I love you so much, because God loves you so much, I'm going to make things very clear to you. I'm going to come and make things perfectly clear. So if that's the case, if he's going to give Daniel information which is going to be helpful and clarifying and helpful, so the information would have to be something that Daniel could take in his hands and use. So he'll be able to take the numbers the angel gives him and say, oh, with these numbers, I now I see what's going to happen and when. But if the angel, according to the Christian understanding, is only giving him a starting point to count at a point 70 years and possibly more after this encounter takes place, the, the angel never says when this decree is going to happen. The angel, again, the words are, Daniel, you should know that from the going forth of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, there'll be seven weeks, which is 49 years. So Daniel walks out of the room with the angel and says, what does that tell me? When do I begin counting those 49 years? What decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? According to Christians, it, hasn't, it won't happen until the year 444. So again, what I'm trying to show you is that according to the Christian assertion that the countdown, I mean by countdown, that when do you start this countdown from the angel, the countdown has to be something that he has access to. It's accessible to him. 
If the countdown starts from here, 444 of the common era of BCE, he doesn't know when that's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. So he'd walk out of there saying, yeah, but when do I begin counting? The angel says, well, you begin from the the uh, decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And, and Daniel says, well, when did that happen? He, it hasn't happened yet. When is it going to happen? The angel doesn't tell him. So if, from the Christian understanding, if the Christians insist that we begin counting the timeline of, of Gabriel, the angel, from 444, from Nehemiah, this is of no help to Daniel. He walks out of the meeting with the angel not knowing one bit of information more than he knew before. What did he want to know? He wanted to know when is the temple going to be rebuilt. So we would assume that the angel is going to give him a calculation that he can make. And the angel says, know and understand that from the going forth of the Davar to restore and build Jerusalem, from that point, count 49 years. So we would assume that Daniel's got to be able to count 49 years. So presumably, the starting point is not after this takes place, but before it takes place. So Daniel can make these calculations. Are we clear? Everyone got this? You have to be honest. Yeah? Okay. So the angel says that there is a davar, a word, there's a word concerning the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's the word of Jeremiah. And we see in verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2, that the word of the God, the Jeremiah the prophet, is fulfilled from the destruction, the Chorvot Yerushalayim, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now we're going to see that there are other passages which attest to this idea that the word of Jerusalem, the word of Jeremiah takes place from this point in time. But according to our calculations now, what Daniel is being told is that seven weeks after the destruction of Jerusalem, what is he told? He says, Daniel, after the destruction, count seven weeks, which is 49 years. What's going to happen? An anointed prince is going to come. Go back to the 25th verse. Know therefore and understand from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince shall be seven weeks. So the first thing Daniel is told is that, and this is in response to his long request, long prayer for the temple to be rebuilt, because he wants to know when is this going to happen? That's what he's puzzled by here, right? He assumes it has to happen right in this year. So the angel says to him, no one understand that from the going forth of the word, the Davar, of Jeremiah, concerning the rebuilding of Jerusalem, when does Jeremiah's Davar word begin to the countdown to the building of Jerusalem? You see, Daniel thought that the countdown of the 70 years of Jeremiah takes place from here. What he's being told here is that no, the, the countdown of 70 years to rebuild Jerusalem doesn't start from the conquest, it starts from the destruction of the temple. So he's told from this point, you're going to count seven weeks, which is 49 years, and then an anointed prince, a Mashiach, is going to come. Who is the Mashiach, the anointed prince, that Daniel is referring to here? We're talking about the year 3338, destruction of the temple, 
And 49 years later, 49 years after the temple is destroyed, an anointed prince comes. Now, Alexander the Great didn't come until much later. Well, it's not a trick question. Who? No. Not a trick question. The Bible tells you specifically, the Bible tells you specifically who the anointed prince was that came seven weeks after the destruction of the temple. And that is Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus the Persian. Now, Cyrus the Persian is God's Messiah. What's going on here? Right? And that's what he's called. The Messiah of God. God's anointed one. So this non-Jewish king, this Persian, is considered... That sounds pretty peculiar. And Christians laugh at us. What are you talking about? You're saying that Cyrus is the Messiah of God? It's not me saying it. Let's look at the Bible. Page 4. This is Isaiah chapter 44, the last verse in Isaiah chapter 44. This is 44 verse 28. That says of Cyrus, that says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all of my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built. And to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Who is going to give the commandment to finally go back to Israel and rebuild the temple? Cyrus, chapter 45 of Isaiah, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, to Cyrus. Isn't it funny here how the King James, this is a King James translation, translates Mashiach here as anointed. But it's God's anointed one, God's Messiah, and the Bible says who is God's Messiah? It is Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let my captives go, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Let's see in a few other places where the Bible tells us who's going to be responsible for the commandment to go back and build Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, by the way, it's right over here. Cyrus, king of Persia. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word, listen to this, it's amazing, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Who is going to fulfill this davar, this word that Jeremiah said? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation and throughout all his kingdom saying, Put it also into writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you, all of his people? His God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He's giving here the Jews permission to return to Israel and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever remains in any place where he sojourns, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts besides the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 36. It should say Second Chronicles 36 here. To fulfill the word, the davar, 
by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. That's referring, by the way, that the land has to keep the Sabbath to the passage on the bottom of the page, Leviticus 26, where God says that the Jewish people don't keep the sabbatical years by resting the land every seventh year. They will be thrown out of the land of Israel and the land will have its rest. That's what happened when the Jews were exiled for 70 years to Babylonia. God says the land will have its rest. Now, in verse 22, Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22, now what happened in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the, that's again the word, the devar of the God, spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth has the Lord God of heaven given me. He has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, etc. So what is Daniel finding out here? Daniel's being told, look, don't count from the conquest of Israel. The word of Jeremiah begins from the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. From that point in time, you will count seven weeks, which is 49 years. If you count 49 years, it's actually, Cyrus is about 52 years. He could either be told count seven weeks or count eight weeks. They don't usually give half a week in the Bible. So he's told here, count seven weeks, which is 49 years. To tell him to count eight weeks would have been 56 years too long. So he's told count 49 years. And then right after the 49 years are up, what happens? Cyrus the Persian orders construction of the temple. And that's what he's told. After seven weeks, what's going to happen? An anointed prince, a ruler who's anointed, that Cyrus, will come. And that's the information that Daniel needs. Because Daniel is waiting for this exact order. He wants to know when are the Jews going to be told to go back to Israel and to rebuild the temple. It happens, he's being told now, Daniel, it's right around the corner. You're sitting here, Daniel, near 3389. Guess what, Daniel? 52 years after the destruction of the temple, there will be an order to go back and build it. In reality, the completion takes place 70 years later exactly. 70 years later exactly. But the first piece of information Daniel is given is that don't be afraid, don't worry about when the Jews will give a, get the permission to go back and build Jerusalem. He's being told here by the angel, in effect, it's going to happen it's right around the corner. It's within the year. Within the year, this Cyrus is going to order the construction of the temple. So that's the direct response to the prayer of Daniel. However, this chapter becomes very complicated because the angel comes and gives him much more information than he bargained for. This is precisely why this chapter is so difficult. Because all Daniel was asking for was information about when the Jews will go back to Israel and rebuild the temple. You know what? The angel tells him not just when the second temple is going to be rebuilt. He's told exactly how long the second temple is going to stand. He's going to be told what conditions the temple will exist under, what life will be like when this second temple is built. And he's told when it will be destroyed. And he's told when the messianic age can begin. He didn't ask for this stuff. But he was answered. The first part of the message from the angel Gabriel told him 
when to expect the orders to go back and build Jerusalem. 49 years after the destruction of the temple. But now the angel goes on and says, let's go back to Daniel chapter 9 now. This is page 3. And we want to begin this now with verse 24. Now we're going to begin with verse 24 and we'll conclude. This is the message of the angel. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people. Seventy weeks is 490 years. So Daniel was told here that I want you to look at Daniel, not 70 years. That's what Daniel was confused about, 70 years. The angel says, Daniel, I'm coming here to tell you much more than these 70 years. I'm coming to tell you about 490 years, which is 70 weeks, not 70, not 70 years, 70 weeks of years. That's what you're going to hear about, Daniel. What does this period of 490 years refer to? The first temple lay in ruins how many years? 70 years. The second, the second temple stood how many years? The second temple stood 420 years. 420 years, second temple stood. Which is 420 plus 70 years the first temple was destroyed. That's 490 years. Daniel was told at the beginning of verse 24, Daniel, I'm not only telling you about when this temple is going to be rebuilt. I'm going to tell you about this entire period of time which will go from the destruction of the first temple till the destruction of the second temple, 490 years. What is going to happen after this period of 490 years? What is going to happen after this period of... meaning once the second temple is destroyed? He's told that there will be the possibility to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now what's interesting is that Christians are forced to contend that Jesus accomplished all of this. Again, Christians insist that Jesus came to bring all this about. And we would question whether or not, after Jesus came and died, there has been an end to iniquity. I mean, there's no more sin in the world. People are not sinning anymore. The Holy of Holies has been anointed. After Jesus, the Holy of Holies was destroyed. So what we're being told here, what Daniel is being told by the angel Gabriel is, Daniel, I want you to know that after this period of 490 years, there's the possibility for the Messiah to come and to bring about a transformed world. That's what he's describing here in verse 24. A world where transgression is finished, sin is finished, iniquities are atoned for, there is everlasting righteousness, and there's a sealing, a completion of vision and prophecy and anointing of the Holy Temple. So what Daniel is told is incredible. He's told Daniel, even though you didn't ask for this, I'm going to tell you, that it will be possible for the Messiah to finally come and to bring about a transformation of the world only after 490 years have elapsed. Once the second temple is destroyed, that's the end of this period of time, then it will be possible for the Messiah to come. Have you ever heard, there's a Talmudic saying that the Messiah was born on the date that the second temple was destroyed? It's a, it's a statement in the Talmud. The Messiah was born on the day that the temple was destroyed. What's meant by that is, that on the day that the second temple was destroyed, it was now possible for the Messiah to come. That's what, that's what Daniel is told here. 
That's the introduction to the prophecy. Know therefore and understand, Daniel, in verse 25 here, that from the time that the davar, that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, who gave this prophecy about restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem? It was Jeremiah chapter 29. That's the good word that God spoke about causing the Jews to return to this place. And when does that counting of Jeremiah 29 begin? That's the whole point of the angel here. He says, Daniel, the counting of that prophecy of 70 years from Jeremiah 29 begins with the destruction of the temple. So know therefore and understand that from the time that the word, the Devar, went out to restore and build Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince will be seven weeks and then comes his anointed prince which is Cyrus. And for 62 weeks, it, the city of Jerusalem, shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. He's being told here that for the period of time the temple is going to be built, the second temple, it will always be in difficult times. We know that as it was being built, the Samaritans were trying to destroy it. We know that shortly after it was built, the Greeks took over Israel, and then the Romans came in. So for the entire Second Temple period, it was a very difficult time for the Jewish people and for the Second Temple. However, after the 62 weeks, after this 483-year, 434-year period of time, an anointed one, not a prince now, not an anointed leader, but an anointed one will be cut off. And then the Temple will be destroyed. So what is this referring to? Who is this second anointed one who was cut off before the destruction of the temple? So the simplest interpretation here is that it's referring to the high priest of the Jewish people, the priesthood. We saw in the book of Leviticus that the priest, the high priest, was called a Messiah, an anointed one. So right before the temple's destroyed, the priesthood of the Jewish people was cut off. It was obliterated. There was no more office of the priesthood. They were out of work. It stopped. It ceased to function. And then shortly after the priesthood was cut off, the temple was destroyed. There wasn't a five and a half year gap or a 50, 40 year gap between these two things. So we're told in verse 26 that after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing and the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's Titus and Vespasian will destroy Jerusalem. And now verse 27, I'm sorry, its end shall come with a flood. This either means that the end of Jerusalem shall be like a flood or the end of the Romans will come like a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27. Verse 27 goes back now to the last seven-year period of the 69 years. I'm sorry, of the 70 years. In this, in this last seven-year period, he, the Romans, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for one half of the week, he shall make sacrifice and offering cease. Meaning that at a certain point, the Romans will stop or prohibit the sacrificing of animals in the temple, even before the temple is destroyed. And in their place shall be an abomination that desolates until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. And finally, after the sacrifices stop, we're told that there'll be an abomination that takes place in the temple. I think it's possible to say that, it shouldn't surprise you, that the reading we just went through is not a thousand percent clear. 
And if you go through commentaries in the book of Daniel, there are quite a few different ways of reading this passage that we just went through. However, none of the legitimate interpretations coincides with anything close to what Christian missionaries try to assert. And the most common interpretation of this chapter of Daniel is not a traditional one, but it tries to have all of the prophecies coming out around the time of the Maccabees. So according to many commentaries, what this period really points to is not the Roman destruction of the temple, but the Greek uh, subjugation of the temple in the time of the Maccabees. And there are probably a dozen other ways of fine-tuning the chapter here in Daniel. What I try to do with you is to share with you one possible reading of Daniel 9, which I believe is fairly loyal to the text. And it has none of the severe problems the Christian reading has. But essentially, what I try to do tonight was two things. Number one, to examine the Christian missionary reading of Daniel 9 and to show you its weaknesses and its uselessness and basically put it to rest. Our problem was then, well, how do we understand Daniel chapter 9? So that, I will contend, is difficult. It's one of the hardest chapters in the Bible. And what I try to do is go through with you some of the understanding of how to approach Daniel 9, especially when it comes to appreciating what the problem Daniel had with the dates of Jeremiah were, and then try and work that back into the ninth chapter. Now, we uh, discussed this question about the dating and the solar year and the, uh, and the, uh, and the lunar year and, and the, the differential between uh, 480, 423 and 586. How, how is all that resolved? When we're talking about dates in the Bible and the calendars, what years are they talking about and how is it reckoned? It's an excellent question. Just about all secular history books say that the temple was destroyed in the year 586. Jewish sources say that it was destroyed in the year 3338. So the Jewish dating, the temple was destroyed in 423 BCE, which is about 160, 160 odd years, 160 odd years after, after the secular dating. Now, in terms of tonight's presentation, everything I did was with the Jewish dates. Now, let's plug in the secular dates and see what it does to Jesus. It kills Jesus. Why? Let's say a temple was destroyed in the year 586, 586 BCE. So the count of the angel Gabriel, Gabriel's count, would begin not in 3338, not not in, uh, in 423, but it would start 586 BCE. You see, when you go 423 BCE, and you add 490 years, you can get 70 CE. So this works out from a Christian point of view. It could. If you have the, the, the temple being destroyed in 586, and you begin counting there, and you add 490 years, where do you come out? You're way short. You're very, very short of Jesus. So they, they only benefit, the Christians only benefit by using our counting. Once they insist on a secular counting, they're in big trouble. They're in worse trouble. So the presentation I gave is true, it's not unanimous, right? You know, plenty of historians will tell me your dates are off, but they're useful, they work, and if you change the dates, it makes it worse for the Christians. It's so evident for myself, um, having been through the whole mill with the Christian proofs, these last two weeks were the two prophecies that, for me, when presented properly, were really the most powerful. I mentioned last week when 
When they talk about Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Even one of these preachers who's presenting it right, ready to convert at the end of Isaiah 53, especially with the way, the way they're able to take the we and the our and the, and the pronouns. This particular passage this week is also very powerful in that you take advantage of two things. Number one, that you don't know the context, etc. And, and, and you're coming from no background in the Bible. And then they present you with all the historical facts. And usually are, you usually are not a good student of history. So when they suggest to you, and I, I know a variety of different ways that it's presented, but you, you know they present so-and-so died, Artaxerxes died, such and such a year, and they count the years. And their whole formula in this, this idea of prophetic years, you don't know that there's no such thing as a prophetic year. And it seems like it's such, such a great argument when, when they finally finish the calculation, the number they end up with is 32.4 AD. Praise God. And they say, how many people do you know of that died in 32.4 AD and were assumed to be the Messiah? I mean, and the way they present it is so, it gives you goosebumps when you think about it. You know, I'll just make your point a little bit stronger. How many of you have heard of Stanley Milgram's experiment on um, authority? You probably have seen it. There's a movie, if you ever see this movie, it'll blow your brains out. But Stanley Milgram was a professor at Yale University. And he did an incredible experiment years ago Essentially, he set up an experiment in education where there was a teacher and there was a pupil. And the teacher was the person that was really subject of the experiment. And the teacher was going to get someone to learn a list of words. And the subject, the, the pupil, was locked in another room and hooked up to a machine that administered electrical shocks. And what Milgram instructed the, the teacher to do is every time that person makes a mistake, you give him a shock. But the shock machine had a dial, and the dial went from mild all the way up to, you know, kill. Right? It was very, and, he, and they were told it would be very, very severe shocks. Meanwhile, this guy in the other room didn't have anything hooked up. It was all a fake. It was done with college students, university students at Yale University. So they showed, it was it's on film. If you see it, it's incredible. So they show these university students are sitting there at the machine, right? And this guy in the other room is making mistakes here and now. So, you know, it gives him a shock. Then after a few minutes, the guy in the next room is screaming. So most of the people in the chair start, you know, getting a little comfortable because, you know, it's not right to give this guy shocks. Sometimes they're even told, by the way, that the guy has a heart condition. So so most people at a certain point just wanted to leave. And what Milgram did was came around with a clipboard and a white coat and said, the rules of the experiment require that you proceed at this point. That's all. And he found that a huge, the vast majority of people would just continue turning that dial up juicing the guy even more, and the guy's been screaming for the last 10 minutes, and then, in many cases, the guy stops screaming, he could be dead. And the guy continues, and when you see the film, you see that a lot of people in the chair here are cracking up, they're laughing nervously because they're going out of their minds. Meanwhile, why don't they get up and leave? Because this yo-yo with a lab coat and a clipboard says, well, the rules require that you proceed. There's no penalty for leaving. No one's got a gun to their heads. But he tried to show that a person in the position of authority, and this is not much authority, has incredible power over us. So what missionaries do is to establish a dominant relationship by getting you to feel that you're an idiot that don't know you don't know anything. So they've, they've, they've got you to admit that you don't know what's going on. They pre- present themselves as the quote-unquote expert, and you very re- readily put yourself into that submissive relationship of a you know uh, uh, an ignoramus at the feet of an expert. And many people say, well, I'm not really a Bible scholar. right? I don't know much of the Bible. Meanwhile, this guy is interpreting it for you. So what happens is his explanation of everything has incredible credibility because you assume that this guy's been studying the Bible for 400 years. You don't even know where the book of Daniel is. 
And that's why when they set up the interpretation, you very, very quickly, psychologically, buy their setup because you're in a subordinate position to them. Right? You're the expert. And it's very, very interesting how we are beholden to experts or people in authority. They did all kind of experiments at universities where they did, for example, people in uniform. People will automatically pay more attention to someone in uniform than someone out of uniform, even if the uniform is an ice cream delivery man. It, it, it's just a position of authority or power that we respect. They, they found that people will not honk luxury cars at a stoplight as quickly as they'll honk an economy car. I mean, there are hundreds of examples of human beings being brainwashed by people in positions of power and authority. So it's true, you know. But I want to stress, many missionaries cannot go through the years here. If even a beginner says, well, how do you do, you know, can you explain how the math works out? <laughs> they won't be able to. They probably never learned it because it's a real pain to go through this. So all they've learned is the bottom line. The Messiah is killed before the second temple is destroyed. That's all they'll present. Very, very few people will go through all the math with you. Just P.S. I didn't mention this in the lecture tonight. If you ever looked at a Christian Bible, this is very interesting. Christian Bible, the books are arranged differently than the Hebrew Bible. Anyone, anyone ever noticed that? The whole Tanakh is arranged differently. So in a Jewish Bible, guess what book comes right after the book of Daniel? Anyone know? Right after Daniel comes the book of Ezra. Right after Daniel is Ezra. In a Christian Bible, Ezra is placed right after Second Chronicles. Many, many books before. So in a Christian Bible, you have Ezekiel, then you have Daniel, then you have the rest of the minor prophets. Now, why would the Christians re-design uh, the structure of the Bible? One possible explanation is a little bit insidious, but it may be true. If you read the book of Daniel, which just prophesied about an anointed one who comes to give the command to rebuild a temple, right? It would certainly help you understand who that was if right after Daniel 9, you, t you were able to find the book of Ezra, and at the very beginning of the book of Ezra, what does it say? It says in Ezra 1, Cyrus is the one that's going to fulfill the commandment of Jeremiah. So the Jewish reading of the Bible, the books of the Bible, give you a clue as to who Daniel's talking about, it's because historically, who comes right after Daniel's prophecy? Cyrus. It's in the book of Ezra. Christians take all that information and they bury it way before you even get to the book of Daniel so that won't, you won't have that clue to tell you who it's talking about. That's a little bit of a trick that Christians use. Have you queried them on it as to why the Bible has been re reordered? I never asked anyone that, no. I mean, no one that's alive now was around back then. Mm -hmm. But it's, And I can't prove my, my suspicion, but it certainly is convenient, right? Sure. Jews for Judaism hopes that you have found this audio recording to be helpful and informative. Jews for Judaism is an international organization dedicated to countering the multi-million dollar efforts of Christian missionary groups that target Jews, the impact of destructive cults and Eastern religions, and the growing rate of intermarriage that is devastating the Jewish community. Jews for Judaism achieves its goals through one-on-one -on -one counseling services and educational programs and materials that connect Jewish people to the spiritual depth, beauty, and wisdom of Judaism. Please contact Jews for Judaism if we can help you. www.jewsforjudaism.ca 
keeping Jews Jewish.